Hello everyone and thank you for tuning in to Hipcast episode 10. This time last year we were releasing our first ever Primer episode and tentatively beginning our podcast journey. Thank you for joining us along the way. I hope that as the festive season approaches you're finding time for moments to enjoy your favourite things, whatever they may be. I'm looking forward to switching off and catching up with a pile of books by my bed and eating party food. In the meantime, here at HipFest HQ, we have exciting news. We have released our 2024 HipFest Festival Passes for sale just in time for Christmas. Our 2024 pass offers new discounts and local offers plus 15% off in the Hipdrome Cafe and Bar. The standard Festival Pass costs £145 or you can upgrade to be a Festival Supporter at £175. All pass holders will be able to access priority booking and take their pick from all the screenings and the talks at the Hippodrome and the Barony Theatre in Bowness with no booking fees, plus automatic registration to all HipFest at Home online events in the run-up to the festival. Supporter pass holders will be thanked with an on-screen credit and receive a wee minding, as they say here in Scotland, a wee present, wee treat, and surprise pass. We really are delighted to be able to offer the convenience of a pass and we hope you find it an attractive option. And as you may know, we rely on grants and sponsorship for more than 80% of HipFest costs. And so we're asking if people will consider purchasing the festival supporter pass if they feel able to do so. We invest all of the box office income we make back into the festival so that we can continue to bring great films with live music, engagement and much more to a wide audience. And those who can pay more will help us to do this whilst keeping the lowest price tickets really affordable for others. Just to say that festival passes are limited and subject to availability, so bag yours early to be sure you don't miss out. We are delighted also to share the news with you that we will be welcoming Greg McNeil of Darkbox Images to Bonus to capture our audiences in true Victorian style using the beautiful, unique and inimitable wet plate collodion process. Householders who book themselves in to sit for one of these special portrait sessions with Greg while at Hipfest will receive a complimentary debossed cabinet card to be used to present their portrait in style. Now, wet plate collodion is an analog photographic process which involves exposing an image onto a glass or tin plate and always involves a degree of luck and unpredictability. The technique was invented by Frederick Scott Archer in 1851 and predated silent cinema before coexisting briefly at the turn of the century. Each collodion portrait is utterly unique, a one-of-a-kind memento to take away and treasure. In today's episode, our digital content manager, Christina, also a photographer incidentally, speaks to Greg about his fascination with Victorian processes, his previous work on 16mm film, and why hypnauts should expect to fall in love with tintypes at HitFest 2024. Greg McNeil, founder of Dark Box Images, is a wet plate collodion photographer living in Falkirk and has worked as a film and digital photographer for over 30 years. Greg's passion for photography was reawakened after discovering the 150-year-old wet plate collodion process about 10 years ago. 
Now, Greg's skill in using an authentic Victorian camera coupled with his experience in precision timing creates remarkable results that appear right before your eyes. He also has a passion for many other Victorian-era processes, including salt printing, album printing, and cyanotype. And these and other photographic adventures are documented online at patreon.com forward slash dark box images. And you'll be able to find links to this and the Dark Box website in the episode show notes, along with more details about the HipFest 2024 Festival Pass. Greg is currently teaching wet plate collodion workshops at his studio in Lava, and we really can't wait to welcome him to HipFest 2024. Thanks so much to Greg for taking the time to be part of this episode. That's all for me for now. Uh, Enjoy the show. Take care. And when the time comes, enjoy a lovely winter break. Hello, my name is Greg McNeil. I'm a photographer and I specialize in Victorian era photographic processes. I'm also a filmmaker and storyteller and um, basically I've made image making my entire life. I didn't know you were a filmmaker as well. Yeah, yeah, a lot of that was uh, from a previous life, but I started out around the age of 13 with uh, Pentax K1000 and I took some photography classes at my uh, high school, my junior high school, and then I took, continued that And it wasn't until I got to university that I started getting into filmmaking. And then all throughout that, I was still using photography as a method of self-expression. And with the filmmaking thing, I I shot some documentaries, a couple of feature films. I did a lot of corporate work. And uh, back then, a lot of our corporate work was still on 16 millimeter film. So I was always into motion pictures and capturing that way. And uh, I pursued the filmmaking endeavors as a career. I started out as a motion picture camera assistant. So I was loading magazines, setting up cameras and pulling focus and all that sort of thing. And then I moved into uh, DOP, director of photography. And then as, as I progressed, I started realizing that the work I was doing wasn't as fulfilling as it used to be. I got into some business relationships with some clients that were not good for me. And I just started getting really kind of bored with it. And I'm one of these people I'm broken in a very specific way. If I'm not truly invested in a project, I don't do it well. And I found with most projects, you need three things to make it successful. You need a budget, you need a deadline, and most crucially, you need someone on the other end who is as invested as you are in the quality of the outcome. And what I found was that a lot of the clients that I was dealing with, that third thing, they didn't care about. They just wanted content. And, you know, you come to someone and say, the budget for this project is X. And they say, I can only give you X minus 10. And 
I'm broken in a way that I'm like, well, I can't really give you X minus 10. So I guess I'm just going to give you the whole thing and take it. And uh, <clears throat> I got to a point where I was just not invested anymore. And my partner wanted me to find something to be interested in again. And so I was going through some images on Flickr, which for the young people out there is a photographic sharing platform used by old people. And Falkirk Council. And Falkirk Council, <laughs> exactly. So I was on Flickr looking through some images that I had liked, and I found that I had liked all of the portrait work of this one particular photographer. And as I looked through it, it all was the same process. And I realized, oh, this is called Wet Plate Collodion. So this is very interesting. So I looked around for workshops. And then what I found was that everybody that was teaching currently had been taught by one guy. And that guy was this photographer in Manchester. And I went and took his class. His name is uh, John Brewer. And so that started this rabbit hole that I haven't found the bottom of. And one of the most interesting things about the wet plate collodion aesthetic that I loved was that this is what I had been trying to do with my photographs since the very beginning. Anything I could do to degrade the image in camera or in the darkroom, I wanted to do. So I was using older lenses, uh, broken lenses, and printing through like broken glass and all of this other stuff just to mess with the image. And in fact, one of my good friends said to me, I was struggling with my artist statement for my first show. And what he said was, you know, what your problem is, is that you want to put as many barriers between yourself and an image as possible. Like you're exactly right. <laughs> that was the basis of my first artist statement. And the way that this process sees the world and the way that it renders images is the way that I see my work and have seen my work from the beginning. So I, I spent a lot of time photographing through plastic cameras like the Holga. I shot for about 10 years exclusively with the Holga. I had a bag full of four Holgas and that was all I shot with. And that really informed the technique that I liked and, you know, the vignetted edge. And then when I was printing, I had a hand cut negative carrier. So I got these grindy edges and, and it was all like using those grindy edges as part of the image frame. And you got a frame within a frame within a frame kind of stuff. I'm a sucker for that. Then going back to my first university level photography course, the teacher whose name I has been lost to the sands of time in my memory. The first thing she did was the first day, she's like, okay, here's some mat board. Here's a, here's a template. You're going to cut out a negative carrier. And we're like, yeah, but that's not going to be perfect. She's like, I know. The reason I want you to do this is so that when you're printing, if I don't see the grindy edge of your negative carrier, I will know that you cropped in post and you will do none of that in this class, you will be, you will fail. And so every time you submitted an image, it had to have that grindy edge and you had to submit the contact sheet with it. And 
basically what she was trying to do was to get us to think about the final image while we were shooting it and to frame in camera and compose in camera and not allow the crutch of printing in the darkroom to do that. And that aesthetic stayed with me forever. Even when I was doing digital photography, I was always composing in frame and very rarely would I crop and post just because that was you know, hammered into my head. All of these things, the, the grindy edges and the, the plastic cameras and doing pinhole work and making cameras and making lenses, all of that was in service of trying to get these images that I realized I could do with this one process. And I immediately, you know, you take a tintype class and then you spend the next year and a half making really crappy tintypes <laughs> until you figure out your process. You have to get that out of your system. I mean, it's even with uh, when I'm shooting out in the world, you know, you come to a space that you're going to photograph and you burn the first half of your roll just on, okay, this is what everybody's going to take. I'm going to get that out of my system. And it's always the last four images on a roll that are the best because then you've worked your way through all of the pedestrian images and you've gotten to the real meat of what you're there to shoot. And oftentimes I don't realize what I'm there to shoot until those last four images. And then you're like, oh yeah. Or the last image as you're leaving a space and you go, oh, that's interesting. Click. That'll be the best one. Hearing you talk about your your journey to finding wet clothing, it seems like from the beginning you were interested in the kind of materiality of photographs, even when they were digital. And I think that's something that when you've never seen a silent film before and you've only been to the cinema, you know, like I had and seen films, digital modern films your whole life. And then when you start watching silent cinema, what really struck me initially was how much stuff there was in the print, you know, seeing those little bits of damage or those little bits of dust or those little discolorations and you suddenly realise that what you're looking at, even if it is a scan, of, even if you're not watching it actually projected from from the, the reels, but you really get a sense of the physicality of the actual film as a thing. Um, because of all those incredible little bits and discolorations, and I know that we're not that people painstakingly work to remove them from um, restorations, but I love seeing those bits. And that's now what I love coming to silent film as an adult is that that because I love that about photography as well, the tangible object of negatives, prints, photographs, albums, you know, things with fingerprints on them. And I had never equated that as being within the film world because you know, right. I was brought up in a time when it was just things like Pixar and you know. Yeah. Um, so I think it's super interesting that in your in your career you've worked with both. And also, I'm fascinated that when you started out in the film industry, everything was still shot in 16 mil. Yeah. That blows my mind. <laughs> well, it it had the best fidelity and the best resolution. Because yeah. this is before digital video. This was when the only video cameras you could get were, you know, Betacam, like news gathering type things. And then you got into 
DV cam and other things, but they were still standard definition. Mm. And if you wanted the best image possible, you were shooting film. Mm. And many of the cameramen that I worked with, we were shooting on Atons and Airy SRs. And then when we were doing the bigger shows, the bigger, um, the bigger projects, we were working with big 35 millimeter Airy cameras. Yeah, it's a, I'm a bit of a, I don't want to say purist because that sounds a bit elitist, but there's, there's a texture and a language to film that is not present in digital cinema. And digital cinema, it's great for what it does because it provides the perfect vehicle to get the exact vision from a director to a screen. Whereas take silent films, for example, the, there's a, a specific language that you can communicate with and your idea, no matter how vast it is, has to be distilled into a language that the film can read, right? So like um, Melier's Journey to the Moon. Obviously, he couldn't create a cannon so large that he could shoot, you know, a rocket ship, right? And so he had to use his theatrical background to say, okay, well, how do I do that here? And once you get past the dawn of cinema, then you get really super creative directors who are pushing the envelope. And you're starting to see, you're starting to see cameras that are more mobile, that can move and that can do dynamic shots. And then you have what many people considered a crutch, which was sound. Now, all of a sudden, the cameras were in huge um, metal refrigerator boxes. And the, the microphones were in huge, large microphones that had to be hidden somewhere. And people had to be in the perfect position and projecting towards that. And the language of cinema had to change. All of a sudden, images were locked. Or they would have crane shots, but it would all be um, uh, audio that was generated after the fact. And this mobile, agile form of, of cinema stopped. And it really wasn't until the 60s that you started to get that back. I mean, you had the the auteurs in, in, in France who were doing these MOS silent style films that then would all be dubbed after the fact. Great, fine. But it wasn't until the 60s that you got cameras that were light enough and quiet enough that you could do these things. Like um, there's a, a Spielberg film. He used the first compact Panaflex camera and he could sit in the back of this car as a chase film. And he wanted a camera that could record sound and he could be in the back seat shooting everything real time. And I think that as the light, as the technology changed, so did the language of cinema change. And I think it's like when you go to a Shakespeare play, the first 10 minutes is getting your ears attenuated to 
the speech and your eyes attenuated to the language of what you're seeing, right? It's the same with a silent film. You're, you're looking at a new language and you're having to figure out, oh, okay, so what they're saying and what are on the cards are different. The cards are just there to summarize. And it's that's one of the things I find so fascinating about cinema. I guess it's only when you really think about it like that that you realize how tied to processes these kinds of art forms are, or at least how driven by processes, not necessarily tied. Which is why I think it's interesting now, you know, 2023, that you are still practicing a photographic process from what almost 200 years ago uh it was invented in 1850 okay yeah so over 150 yeah, years ago well over yeah um and still choosing to employ that i mean so first of all for our listening audiences that have never heard of wet plate clouding photography would you be able to briefly explain what yes. the process is and what it looks like so the wet collodion process is as follows. You take a plate, either glass or metal, and you coat it with a substance called collodion. Collodion is a nitrocellulose gun cotton dissolved in alcohol and ether and a couple of other things. And it's this goopy substance, syrupy substance. And you coat a plate with that. You soak that plate in silver nitrate. Then before, once that plate comes out of the silver nitrate, Everything else has to be done before the plate dries. So you have to load it, expose it, develop it by hand, rinse it, fix it, and then you can rinse it again. And all that has to be done within around, I think the most I've been able to push it is about six or seven minutes. Wow. <laughs> so you have to have your dark room there and it has to be all done before it dries. And this process poses any number of technical challenges. Um, first of all, it's only sensitive to ultraviolet light. So it's orthochromatic, much like all of the film stock up until, in some instances, the 40s and 50s. Um, so it only sees the blue end of the spectrum. Everything affects the wet collodion process. So ambient temperature, humidity, barometric pressure, the age of your collodion versus the age of your developer. So as collodion ages, it gains contrast and loses speed. And as developer ages, it gains contrast and loses speed. So you want to mix your collodion and your developer at the same time so you can roughly hope for some kind of um, consistency. And that's one of the things that intrigues me about it is that every single image that you make, it's, it's unique. It's one of a kind every time. You can have the same exposure time, the same everything, and the images will be slightly different. I mean, it's interesting, I think, in a society driven by convenience, or at least as it appears in a kind of, in a, in a scientific or a, in a technological progress timeline driven by convenience and making everything more and more convenient. And, you know, now we have cameras in our phones and 
you can take a picture so easily. What is it about that pro that process which I know you've described how the aesthetic is what you were already trying to create and I can appreciate that it must be very magical. But what is it about that process that that so much is is limited and you know and so much is restricted and you're you're trying to do a lot within that six, seven minutes. What is it that you fell in love with about that as opposed to more convenient forms of photography? Well, first of all, this is probably it's the second most inconvenient form of photography <laughs> we've ever created as humans. But what I love about it is that you you are a part as the, as you create the image, you are a part of the image creation in a very physical way. You pour the collodion onto the plate, so everything you do affects the image there, right? You place the image into the silver nitrate. And if you do that wrong, it can all go pear-shaped. Every, every step of the way, you influence the look of this image. And I've created the image by hand every single step of the way. There is very little you can do after the image is developed to change it. I mean, there's no Photoshop. There's one thing you can do if the image is a little bit overexposed, you can use a farmer's reducer and maybe bring it down a little bit. But I have to say, it rarely works out well. But it's it's the visceral involvement in every step of this handmade image that fascinates me. And even when I was shooting film, there's still a part of that that I have no part of, right? You know, the emulsion is going to do what the emulsion is going to do, but I got to say, modern emulsions are incredibly forgiving. I mean, two stops either way, you're you're fine. Back in the day when you were shooting ectochrome, it was like you have a half a stop over and half a stop under. And if you didn't nail your exposure perfectly, the image was, it's nothing. It's crap, which makes me have so much respect for the National Geographic photographers. That's all they shot, Eptochrome. And they would go out into these harsh environments and come back with images that were just bang on perfect. And that, as a technician, that is amazing. With this process, you have to be able to accept and embrace the imperfections that the process gives you. Um, the, the grindy edges of the image from the plate holder and the interaction of the silver nitrate and your plate holder. You can do a lot to mitigate that, but you have to accept that it's going to be there. You're going to see minute ridges of the collodion as it's poured off the plate. It creates these tiny ridge lines. And you will see them if you go in and in and in and in and in. This is not a format for pixel peepers. You know? Not a phrase. <laughs> well, it's like it's like when you when you um take a digital photograph and you blow it up to three hundred percent in Photoshop to see if it's sharp. If it's not sharp three hundred percent, it's crap. Which I I think focus is kind of overrated. But this this 
type of photography really forces you to, well, it's hard to explain. You have to think of the image in a different way. It's not going to be perfect. And, and I know there are wet collodion photographers out there who are far better than I am. I am, I would not consider myself a master of this, of this type of photography. I would consider myself an experienced novice, really. I've only been doing it since 2014. And there are people out there that are making images of a much higher caliber than I am. I tend to be really process-driven and process-oriented. And so I approach my work from a process avenue versus a, a thematic or a subject way that most photographers do. I want to see what this process can do. And then I want to use what that process can do to make something interesting. And this goes back to motion pictures where it is a physical medium. You are physically taking the film and loading the film into the camera. The camera is physically moving the film through the gate and exposing each individual frame. And there's something that I find highly comforting about the sound of a cinema camera as it's shooting. Um, like the sound of an Aton XTR. An Aton is a French camera. It's the quietest, steadiest film camera ever created. And the sound of it is this little... And versus like the, the Airy 2C, which is a 35 millimeter... MOS camera, so it doesn't have a blimp, and it sounds like a sewing machine. And you have these old hand-cranked cameras, and they had a specific sound to them, and the technology of those is so intriguing. When you open a, a hand-cranked camera up from that period, you look at it, and that's all of those gears and cranks are handmade. And at the start, it was just literally a crank attached to the gear that would move everything, right? And as that technology progressed, you got what was called the drunken screw movement, which was this chain. And the chain had a little bit of slack in it. And what the slack did was even out the downstroke versus the upstroke. The downstroke was always faster than the upstroke. And so the movement would be a little bit off, right? Well, this drunken screw movement allowed that to be a little more steady. And I've shot with hand-cranked cinema cameras before, and it's a completely different aesthetic and a completely different way of thinking. If you've ever been on a set, you'll hear the assistant director say, roll sound, and the sound guy will say, speed. And that's because the old reel-to-reel -reel recorders, when you would start them, they would start slow and get up to speed. And then you'd say, roll camera. And then you'd hear speed. That was because the, the guy would have to get up to speed. And all these cameramen would have different tricks to keep a steady speed. And a lot of them would put songs in their head, like Camp Town Racist. Camp Town Racist, sing this song, do-da, And that was how they kept proper speed. That would drive me a bit insane after a while. Absolutely. That but the other thing with that is that at that time, you couldn't look through the lens of your camera. You had, you had what were called parallax finders. 
and you could kind of see almost, but basically you were just pointing it in the direction and it was lots of wide shots. And then for the close-ups, you would carefully measure out the distance. Yeah, it's really, it's a different way of working and it's a slower way of working. I think it's very easy to forget the physical, the physicality of shooting, of using a lot of that equipment. Yeah. And equally, as you were saying earlier about the wet plate collodion images that you produce and about how there's not really much you can do to them afterwards because it all has to be right during that six, seven minutes. But I think what's really unusual today is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but with wet plate, with tintypes and the, the images that you produce, there is one thing, you know, there is one thing produced and that's it. You yeah. know, it's one unique. And I, I think even with prints and stuff, it's really unusual to a lot of people to think about a solid photograph, you know, a piece of glass or a piece of metal. That is that is the object. That to me is really special. And I think because we're so not used to handling photography, I mean, we probably are because we're weird and we, we like analog photography, but most people aren't used to having this one super precious one thing you know one image it's like victorian polaroid really you know it's a one of one and the people who recognize that it's something precious and special that's really who my audience is and like when i go through this process and make a portrait with somebody the way i do this is that i the sitter is part of the story and we make this image together. So they're there and looking at each individual step in this process it takes around 15 minutes. So I talk to them as I'm pouring the collodion saying, this is what we're doing here. This is going here. And I explain a little bit about the history of the process and its effects on Victorian society. And then we sit for the photograph and they sit there for between four and seven seconds in a head brace. And then after that, they go to the dark room and I usually have a little monitor set up with a live video feed to the dark room so they can see the development of the image and see the image coming up. And then we go to the fixer and the fixer is what I call the magic bit. That's where the, you watch the image turn from negative to positive right before your eyes. And that's the, that's the magic. That's the real great part. And then... <clears throat> And then it gets rinsed and dried and mounted. And when invariably, when I hand it over to someone, they take it with both hands and kind of have this moment of either, what the hell am I going to do with this now? <laughs> or, wow, this is something really special. And I think it's that kind of physicality that we have this connection with our photographs that has kind of been lost if they're only on a screen, even if they're only in a digital frame, that physicality is gone. There are generations of people that have grown up without the shoebox under the bed of family photographs, right? My mother was very, um, was, was very particular about not having a shoebox of photographs. They were all in albums and they were very organized. Whereas other people I know, it's just literally a shoebox and it's just chaos. <laughs> and I have to say that un 
I have a box of photographs. They are in albums. Um, but it's, it's those physical things, looking at them and feeling them and touching them, especially when they're really, really old images, like the little square black and white photographs with the, the scalloped edges. And if you're, if you're lucky enough to have some of the very first snapshot photographs, which are little tiny squares with circular images in them from the first Kodak camera, these, these physical objects that we have of our history are really, really important. So many of, especially our silent film history is gone, you know, through, through some through fault of our own, but you know, nitrate stock turns to vinegar and explodes and, you know, there's nothing you can do about that, but film preservation is so, so important as well as photographic preservation, incredibly important. And I bang this drum all the time, but in 50 or a hundred years, there's going to be a black spot in our ephemeral history where nothing exists. At some point, no computer is going to be able to read a JPEG. And every time you back up your digital files, you're going to lose something invariably. And a lot of prominent photographers that do digital work are making physical negatives of their work for backup because you can always find a light source to look through something, right? It's fascinating. I, yeah, it's kind of terrifying in, at the same time. Yeah. Thinking about that lack of... Print your photographs, guys. Print your work. Or come and sit for a portrait. Absolutely. And take something away with you that you can hold and Put on show a mantelpiece. Yeah. yeah. And pass to someone, you know. Exactly. We have thousands and thousands of tintypes from the 1850s still with us today. It's one of the longest lasting, hardest wearing types of photography we've ever created as humans. Its resolution still to this day is not matched because there is no grain. They are gorgeous. It's it, like they're made out of water. I don't yeah. know how to describe so, it. A properly exposed and focused tintype theoretically has detail down to the molecular level. There is no point where the grain breaks. breaks. Mm. It's, and that's why this process was used through the 1960s in the printing industry, because there was no way to get greater fidelity for an enlargement than wet collodion. It's amazing. Thank you so much, Greg. I think that's probably all we've got time for, although... I want to continue talking about wet plate collection for another for another half an hour, but thank you so much. And it's we're so excited to host you at HitFest 2024 and to be able to offer such a special service for our audiences, which we know will absolutely love this opportunity. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you soon. Listen out for more episodes, like and subscribe wherever you're listening. We would love it if you would rate and review this podcast to help us reach a bigger and broader audience. A final request, HipFest needs help and you might be our missing link.
We rely on grants and sponsorship for more than 80% of HitFest costs to bring you great films with live music and much more. Could you or someone you know benefit from a sponsorship slot in this very podcast? If so, then please get in touch by emailing hipfest at folkirk.gov.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. Thank you.